He's patient with us when we mess up, but he's impatient to help us, isn't he? And it's been so wonderful just to hear all these testimonies coming forward of the fact that we have asked and God has answered. And that we have seen him move in our lives. And really, I mean, that's the heart of the message I wanted to bring to you this morning. And so, you know, I'm slightly annoyed that God's got ahead of me. Um, Yes, absolutely. But I'm so grateful to be... And part of me just wants to continue in that. And let's just keep praying for each other and seeing the Spirit of God move in our lives. Um, But I've also spent a lot of time preparing this. And we do need to move on with Corinthians. So we're going to do both. Is that okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to read to you what I've prepared and then we'll, we'll spend some more time in prayer at the end. Because we've got a good God, right? Excellent. Well, we're doing well. We're, we're on four weeks in, we're on chapter three of 2 Corinthians. Um, has anyone read this week's chapter? Anyone read ahead? Steve? <laughs> anyone else? Yeah, well done. Good. Did it bless you? Were you encouraged? Silence. Excellent. Well, hopefully I can help out. <laughs> um, part of our hope with this series on 2 Corinthians is that by increasing your, your knowledge of the history and the context of these letters, that when you read these words of Paul, you find them less confusing. Because Paul can be tricky, can't he? Sometimes we can read it and think, what has that got to do with anything? Why do I care about your travel plans, Paul? And I, I love that quote that Steve used at the start of this series from Peter 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter says, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Yes, they do. However, we must remember that Peter was appreciative of Paul's ministry. And in fact, he says in the previous verse that Paul writes with the wisdom that God gave him. And so there is wisdom for us here this morning, even when Paul can sometimes be a little bit tricky to understand. And I don't want us to miss anything that God might want to say to us this morning. So let's just pray before we we carry on. Heavenly Father, I pray as we open your word together today that you would speak to our hearts. Father God, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. Father, you would cause us to grow deeper into our knowledge and love of you. And Father God, that we would leave this morning as changed people. Father, continue to move in this place in your spirit as you have done so already this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I thought it might be useful this morning just to give you a few top tips on how to read Paul. And these are, um, these are just tips for reading the text. If you want to, to learn more of the history and, and study the nuances in the Greek, then there's plenty of resources out there for you. Um, but this is just if you're picking up your Bible and reading yourself. So my first tip is this. Um, read Paul's letters Allowed. Now, I understand that's a little bit trickier if you're on the bus um, or whatever. But the reason I think it's important we read Paul's letters aloud is because we need to be reminded that Paul didn't write the letters with an ink or quill or whatever he used back in those days. He used a scribe. How do we know this? Well, it was a popular practice of the day. Even people that were educated used a scribe. Um, and we also have evidence in his other letters. So, for example, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 16, verse 22, we read that I, Tertius, the one writing down this letter, greet you in the Lord. It's nice, isn't it? He lets Tertius say a little hello in his letter. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe Tertius just wanted to sneak his, his name in there. We'll never know. Um, 
And also Paul had appalling handwriting, something that him and I have in common. Um, In his letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 11, he writes, Look how large these letters are, because I'm writing in my own hand. And in fact, the original scroll to the Galatians had several scrolls sellotaped together. And uh, no, I'm I'm just kidding. But it's interesting, isn't it? My my point is that Paul didn't sit at a desk carefully composing these words. He spoke them. And I like to imagine that he he walked around as he did and he he got more animated with his arms as he spoke these letters and he got more impassioned about the points that he was trying to drive home. And so when we read his letters, I think it's useful to read them aloud. After all, this is how they were presented to the church. They weren't printed in 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 the church news bulletin. For that week, they'd have been read from the front of the church to the whole congregation. My second tip is to read them slowly. Now, we don't know um, what kind of a speaker Paul was. In his comments at the end of this book, this uh, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 6, he says, I may indeed be an untrained speaker, but I do have knowledge. And of course, the best speakers, the best speakers know how to use their voice, don't they? They... They quiet down when they want to draw you in and bring your attention to what they're saying. And then they get louder and more impassioned when they want you to be excited. And they know when to leave a pause for you to reflect on what they've just said. (laughs) And we don't know if Paul had this sort of speaking skill. um, But we know he had a lot to say. He says, I do have knowledge. In Acts 20 verse 7 we read that Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. He spoke for so long that one guy who happened to be sitting on a window fell asleep and fell to his death. Don't panic. God raised him back to life. But even if perhaps Paul was not the most dynamic speaker, God was with him. And so what Paul has to say I think is worth hearing. So read it slowly and don't sit in a window as you read it. (laughs) <laughs> and our third tip, and I think this is maybe the most important tip for us this morning, is that when we read Paul, we need to engage our imagination. Our imagination, I believe, is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. And if anyone is struggling with their imagination this morning, then please come and spend some time with my children. Or take them away, that's fine as well. But you know, children are amazing, aren't they? They can turn a carpet into lava, they can turn a stick into a lightsaber, a laundry basket into a Dalek. And when Paul writes his letters, he writes with such imagination. It's from Paul we get this idea of the church being a body. You know, some of you are ears, some of you are noses, some of you are eyes, but they all work together. He talks a lot about foundations that the church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus, that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit. He talks about his own life as running a race and fighting a good fight. It's from Paul we get this idea of putting on the armour of God. You know, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the, whatever the shoes were, and, and so on. And he just has this awesome imagination. In fact, next week we're going to look at one of my favourite passages in the whole Bible where Paul compares us to jars of clay. Fragile. Breakable, easily broken, but filled with the all-surpassing power that comes from God. And so if Paul speaks with such imagination, we need to remember to engage our imagination as we read his letters. And as I said already, this week is going to give us plenty of opportunity to do that. So, let's jump in. Um, Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3, if you've brought them. And I'm going to read to you from verse 1. 
out loud and slowly. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Pretty imaginative stuff, right? So what's going on in these first few verses? Well, you know from previous weeks that Paul is under fire from the Corinthians. They were unsure whether he was a leader worth following, or perhaps I should say they were unsure whether he was a leader that they should continue following. So remember, Paul was the one that founded the church. And one of the difficulties that Paul had was that he lacked any external accreditation for his ministry. You see, most of the apostles, those are the early church founders and leaders, were disciples of Jesus. When he walked the earth, they, they knew each other, they vouched for each other, they confirmed each other's ministry. Paul, on the other hand, was not a part of the gang. He was a latecomer to the party. And Paul met Jesus for the first time when he was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus on his way to persecute and imprison followers of Jesus. You see, Paul was in a, he was in a different gang altogether. And it was only after this life-transforming encounter with the risen Jesus that Paul became an apostle and started to travel the world spreading the good news of Jesus. And in those days, it was quite common when someone arrived somewhere new that they would arrive with a letter of commendation. And the letter played a couple of roles. So firstly, um, it introduced them as a person. So, for example, this is my friend Steve. Secondly, it testified to their character. Uh, he is a godly man who, despite growing up in Wales, has not learned to sing. Um, but he did eventually see the light and move to the promised land of Tamworth, England. Thirdly, it speaks of their abilities. He's a first-rate preacher and pastor full of grace, who would not think of sacking the assistant pastor for making fun of his heritage. <laughs> you notice I'm not making eye contact. <laughs> Actually, Paul writes one of these letters of commendation himself uh, for someone called Phoebe in Romans 16. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's a deacon of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need for you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. But, so this is common. This is commonplace. But Paul had no such letters of commendation. Now, interestingly, the last letter of commendation that Paul received was from the high priest. And it told people that he had the permission of the Sanhedrin to persecute and to imprison followers of Jesus. You can read about it in Acts 9 too. So where was Paul's commendation now? Well, for Paul, his commendation was not a letter written by a man, but it was a calling that was given to him by God. And if we go back to look at chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, he writes, Paul, an apostle, which means someone that's been sent by Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is his commendation. 
In the letter to uh, the church at Galatia, he puts it even more strongly. He writes, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Christ Jesus and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And Paul has this clear sense in his life that his commendation was from God, not from man. And the thing is, you know, Paul's commendation from the high priest, that used to be his calling. That used to be his job, but God gave him this new calling, this new job, and Paul made that his commendation. In Acts 9.15, God speaks to Ananias concerning Paul, and he says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and the people of Israel. So I think perhaps the first challenge that God has laid before us this morning is this. Is our calling our commendation? In other words, are we more interested in what other people say about us or what God has called us to do? Are we more, perhaps this morning, maybe this morning you're unsure, you're not sure what it is that God has called you to do. Maybe you, do, you don't know. Well, firstly, I want to say to you that this morning you are called to believe in Jesus. You are called to follow his teaching and lifestyle. And you are called to walk with him and learn from him and understand life in its fullest. And you know, Jesus said the thing that God wants from us most is for him to, to know him, to be known by God, to know God, to love him and to love our neighbour as ourselves. And once we discover that, once our life becomes transformed by that truth, then it's our calling to spread the word about Jesus. Isn't it? Now, some of us might have a specific call on our lives. Some of us might be called to be a teacher or a pastor or an evangelist. Or some of us might be called to a specific group of people, children or teenagers or the elderly or families. But all of us, all of us are called to be lovers of God and lovers of each other. And Paul was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, their kings, and to Israel, which is a fairly large remit if you think about it. But my point is that he made that calling his highest priority. For Paul, this was first. This was his whole identity. You know, he writes in another of his letters, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I wonder how many of us would, you know, how we would write that sentence ourselves this morning. For me to live is. I'll just leave one of those dramatic pauses there for you. So Paul moves on from commendation to talk about the confirmation of his calling. And the confirmation of Paul's calling was not, received, was not a ringing endorsement from the people he served, certainly not in the case of the Corinthians, but it was that he had seen lives transformed by Jesus. He writes in verse 2, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Essentially, he says, the difference that God has made in the lives of the believers in Corinth, the fact that they're no longer the same people that they used to be, has confirmed the validity of his calling amongst them. Their changed lives testify that Paul has a ministry in Corinth. And actually, this is the same, this is the same measure that Jesus teaches us to use in Matthew 7.15. He writes, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. People do not pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. When we think about our Christian leaders, our Christian mentors, and perhaps even our Christian friends, how do we, how do we measure them? Number of Bible verses memorized? Ability to understand Revelation? 
I haven't met anyone yet. Um, most elaborate prayers. What we should really be asking is, do they help people become more like Jesus? That's our measure. You know, last week Steve gave us eight good qualities of a leader, and if I could be so bold as to add another, a good leader produces fruit. And of course there's a challenge for all of us in this verse, even those that perhaps wouldn't consider themselves a leader. Paul says that our lives are like letters. Not private letters, but open letters. Letters which are known and read by everyone. Let's just think about that for a moment or two. Use your imaginations, if you will. If someone was reading the letter of you, what would it say? Because you know, through you, people have the opportunity to read about Jesus. I think the message paraphrases these verses wonderfully. It says, Your very lives are a letter that anyone can read just by looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit. Not chiseled into stone, but carved into human lives. And we publish it. I love that. We publish it. God has placed his calling in our lives. The Holy Spirit has written God's laws on our heart, as it says in Hebrews 10. But we are the ones that deliver the message. It's down to us. And we do that by the lives we lead, the things we say, the people we are, how we show and demonstrate our love for people, where we spend our time and our energy and our money. And you know, the hard truth is that the only Bible some people will read is us. People who don't know Jesus aren't going to read the Bible. Why would they? It's long and confusing and written by a God they're not sure exists. But they will read our lives. And what will they see there? Will they see a life that's being transformed by Jesus? Or will they see the same story that they see in everybody else's life? Challenging, right? Robert McShane, who used to be the minister of the Church of Scotland in the 1800s, once wrote, The Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. So I guess the second challenge this morning is, does our life reflect our calling? What does the letter of our lives say? Let's read on. Verse 4. Such confidence... We have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let's just pause there. So Paul is clearly in full preacher mode, isn't he? He's spoken about commendation and confirmation. He now speaks about confidence, competence and covenant. Right? Well done, Paul, for making all your points begin with C. That's very helpful. But really what Paul is doing here is he's setting up this little sermon that he's going to deliver in this letter over the next few chapters. And you can, I encourage you to read on actually, because you can follow this sermon that he's telling now. And he's explained to them that they are God's letter, that God reveals himself through their lives. But now he's going to go on to explain how, how they are able to live a life that is worthy of God's calling. And he uses himself as an example. He says that his competence doesn't come from his own ability, but his competence comes from God. On his own, he's sort of useless, but God has made him 
enabled, enabled him to live the life that he's been called to. And then he talks about himself as a minister of a new covenant. What is the new covenant? So let's break it down. A covenant is an agreement or, or a contract that is made between two people, two parties. Um, a marriage is a form of a covenant. Obviously, we're very excited about Nathan and Amy's marriage on Saturday. Um, but because there's a new covenant or agreement, it's logical to assume that there's an old one as well. And there are two words. There are two words in the Greek um, for the word new. Neos and kainos. Okay? And neos refers to something that is new in, in a point of time. So something uh, that was neos would be like a baby, because they are newborn, new in a point of time. Kainos refers to something that's not only new in time, but new in quality. So something that is superior, something that is better than what has been before. And Paul says that this covenant that he's talking about is kainos. It's better. It's superior to what's been before. And he wants us to see that he is a minister of this new, better agreement between God and man that not only gives him the confidence to stand before God, but the competence to live for him. And that the whole thing is made possible by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to read on into the sermon. He's going to unpack this for us a little bit more. Are you okay? Are you still with me? Yeah? Okay. Three of you. Awesome. That'll do. Right. Now, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, And what was transitory came with glory. How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? See, this is why you need to read Paul slowly. If we'd gone faster that, it would have been a blur of glory and glorious, wouldn't it? I'm sure you'd have been good at tongue twisters. Paul was a very good Jew. Paul um, was from the Pharisaic tradition. He knew his Bible extremely well. In fact, he'd have had a lot of it committed to memory. And for Paul, his Bible is what we now call um, the Old Testament. He didn't know it at the time, but he was in the middle of writing the New Testament. Well, some of the New Testament anyway. Um, And he's talking to the Corinthians about this new covenant. And he begins to refer back to the old covenant, which is written about in his Bible, the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Exodus. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, I would encourage you to stick a finger in Exodus 34. Because we're going to need to flick between the two. And this is where he's making his comparisons from. So he's talking about when the covenant was first made between God. The agreement was first made between God and the nation of Israel. And we are told in Exodus 34 that Moses, who was the leader of the nation of Israel at the time, went up Mount Sinai, which is a big mountain near Egypt. And God said to him in verse 10, Exodus 34, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people I will do wonders never before done in any nation in the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Sounds good, right? Glorious, even. And the idea was that this people, this nation, would live according to God's will and design for their lives. That they would follow his plans and that he would be their God and they would be his people. And that together... 
they would reveal God to all the nations, to the rest of the world. That was the plan. Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights with God on this mountain. And then we read in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And spending time with God had changed him. He looked different. His face shone with God's presence and it was glorious, as Paul said. But the point that Paul is making is that the glory didn't last. It faded, disappeared over time. And ultimately, we know, those of us that that have had a go at the Old Testament at least, um, ultimately know that the people were unable to follow the law. They broke the covenant, the agreement between God and man. And Paul wants us to see that the covenant is unable to produce lasting results in people's lives. He writes that the old covenant was written on stone with letters, that's the, the tablets we just read about, but the new covenant has been written on hearts by the Spirit. In other words, although people knew what God wanted them to do, they knew how he wanted them to live, they understood what was required. Their hearts had not changed. They were unable to do it. And my guess is that many of us here this morning will be able to relate to this. You know, you want to live for God. You want your life to reflect his calling, but you find yourself doing those things that you know you shouldn't, or living in a way that you know is outside of God's design or God's rule or reign in your life. You know, Paul himself wasn't immune from this. He writes in his letter to the Romans, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And very often we find ourselves tripping up, right? Those open letters that we are writing to the world become smudged and hard to read. Let me use use pornography, for example. That woke you up. That's something that many of us struggle with or have struggled with in our lives. And those of us who follow Jesus have hopefully come to the conclusion that that using pornography is wrong. It has a negative impact on our thoughts and our desires and it promotes an industry that is against God's desire and God's heart for his people and his creation. And so we take steps to, to stop ourselves from viewing it, install safeguards on computers and phones and try not to be alone too much, but you find yourself slipping up. Because that lustful desire still exists in your heart. And that's just one example. It might not be lust for you. It might be anger or maybe a jealousy or or greed or any desire that exists in your heart that you know is outside of God's plan for your life. And Paul says that the old covenant, it doesn't fix it. It just leads to condemnation. The people are condemned because they know what's acceptable, but they continue to make the wrong choice knowing that they're breaking their covenant relationship and knowing that the awesome things that God has promised to do in their lives would not be fulfilled. And here's the problem. This is the heart of the issue. The law was trying to change people from the outside when what they needed was to be changed from the inside. And this, for Paul, is the new covenant. This is the superior, the kainos covenant that he wants these people, the Corinthians, to know about. The Spirit of God The Holy Spirit, it changes you from the inside out. It takes up residence in your heart and it takes away your old desires and replaces them with desires for the things of God. It makes us a competent Christian. Remember what he says in verse 5, not that we are competent in ourselves, we can't claim anything for ourselves, but that our competence comes from God. 
So I think the third challenge we have this morning is that are we trying to lead a Christian life in our own strength? Or are we allowing the Spirit of God to change us? Are we living in the old covenant or the new? He continues in verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's where his arms get flappy. That's where he gets really excited about what he's saying as he's reading these things. And so Paul, he takes us back to Exodus one more time and he talks about Moses' veil. Now this isn't some kind of uh, ancient Middle Eastern fashion accessory. Um, If you've still got a a finger in Exodus 34, have a look at verse 33. It says, When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what uh, he had been commanded. They saw his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. So whenever he went to speak with the Lord, he would come out beaming, literally beaming, And after the people saw him, he'd stick a veil over his face until the next time he spent time with God. And Paul's point is this, that without God's spirit inside of him, the change in Moses was only ever temporary. It didn't last. Any one of us, I think, can pretend to be a follower of Jesus for a short time. You know, we can put on that that Christian veil... Not Christian veil. That was Batman. Christian veil. But just like Batman, we can wear a mask, can't we? When things inside are not really as they should be. And you see, without God's spirit to help us, we cannot lead the life that God wants us to lead. So how can we make sure that the spirit is with us? Well, there is a final C word that Paul uses at the end of the chapter. Did you catch it? He says, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And when you contemplate something, you, you look at it deeply. You spend time with it. You try to understand it better. You wrestled with it. And he says that when we do that, we are transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. Not with increasingly fading glory like Moses, but with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we turn to Jesus and when we depend on him and not our own competence, but on the power of the Spirit, that's when our lives begin to change. Not just our faces, but our whole lives begin to reflect and show God's glory. As the Spirit of God brings freedom to our lives, people begin to notice that there is something different about us. It's a letter they've never read before. And as we become unburdened from guilt and shame, as he takes away our condemnation and fear and gives us the power that we need to live free from sin, from greed, from lust and envy and pride, we become free. We become free to live and fulfill the calling that God has placed on our lives. 
and to spend our time and energy loving God and loving each other with nothing to hide. And you know, the more time we spend with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the more he changes us into his likeness. But we have to make space for him. We've done it this morning already, haven't we, in the service. It's been wonderful just to take that time and allow God and his spirit to minister to us. We have to make sure it's him that's writing our letter and not somebody else. And this is the new covenant that Paul wants them to see. I wonder if the band would just come and join me. I'm not quite done because I want us to respond to this this morning, as I said. Um, <clears throat> I don't know where you are with your walk in God at the moment. Perhaps today you have the confidence to say uh, that your life is an open letter, a testimony to the work of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, if you have that confidence, then I'd ask you to spend the next few minutes just praying for the rest of us. I guess many of you will be like me in that you are painfully aware that you need more of God's Spirit in your life. That you need God's glory to increase in your life and not decrease. Perhaps you're tired this morning of going after this Christian life in your own strength, in your own will. And maybe there are even those of you here this morning that feel condemned. I feel like perhaps you just don't measure up. Like how is it even possible that you can lead this life? It's just beyond your reach. You know, there's very little that me or Steve can do for you this morning, but I believe that God can do a work in your heart. Paul writes in Romans 8 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And we are free this morning to live God's way through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I believe that if you want this morning, if you need God to move in your life this morning by the power of His Spirit, and He will. He's an impatient God. We've seen Him moving this morning already, haven't we? In people's lives. And he's got more for you. I promise you. But that might require you to take off the mask. This morning. It might require you to stand up and ask him to help you this morning. To pray and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your spirit to help me. Just to lay it all on the line. I wonder if you would stand with me this morning. I want to pray for you guys and then the band are going to lead us in a time of worship. But I'm trusting that God's spirit is going to minister to you this morning. Would you just close your eyes? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge this morning that we can do nothing on our own. Father, that we are not capable of living this life that you have called us to. But it's through your spirit that we are able. And Father, there are those of us this morning that feel like we want to give up. That we want to throw it all away. That we don't want to have the burden of trying to measure up anymore. And God, what's happening is we're living in that old covenant. We're feeling that condemnation when you say by your word that you have taken it away. And Father, we just need a touch from you this morning. We need to know deep in our hearts again this morning who you are and we need to find ourselves in that truth. 
Father, you say in your word that it's not by strength nor by might, but it is by your spirit. And God, I ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us now. Father, that as we find ourselves giving up this morning, we would find you picking us up and carrying us forward. God, we trust you.